this is an old school circus tent that my wife and I made for the sermon illustration. Applause, please. You've never seen such a beautiful circus tent, I know. At least not in a sermon on a Sunday night in 2019. Yeah, okay. So I want to draw particular attention to the difference between the side poles and the center post of a circus tent. If you remove a side pole, it doesn't cause that much problem. In fact, if you were to remove one of the side poles, you could still use the tent, right? But the center pole... Well, that's different. You pull that center pull out, and the whole thing collapses. I'm so glad that worked. <laughs> that really messed me up, you know. You guys better listen. I got my... The center pole lifts all the other poles up. The other poles are essential to the functionality of the thing, but without the center pole, they're useless, as is the circus tent. So here's my question for the evening. What is the center pole of the Christian faith? What is the most important piece that you have to be convinced of for the rest of the thing to work? Is it the Bible? I would suggest that the Bible is not the center post. I would say it's a side post. Is it God's existence? I believe that's a support post. Is it the church? Is it the teachings of Christ? Is it the notion that Jesus died for our sins? Is it belief in heaven? Is it Christian living? No. These are all essential. Don't get me wrong. Don't call me a heretic yet. But they're not the center pole. There's another piece to our faith that when it's, let me see if I could do this. When it's put into the circus tent, yeah, right? It lifts all the other pieces up. And Paul tells us what that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Paul says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here it is. The center pole of genuine Christianity is the rock-solid belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. If you really believe that Jesus was dead and then walked out of his own grave, you're going to want to know everything he had to say because you'd like to be able to do that too. 
If you believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, you're going to want to follow him and study his word. I heard a preacher say it this way. I don't believe in the story of Noah because the Bible tells me the story of Noah. I believe in the story of Noah because Jesus Christ believed in the story of Noah. And why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we believe he's the son of God? Because he pulled off a heck of a trick, guys. He was dead for three days, and then he walked out of his own grave. Without this faith, this piece of your faith, well, then your faith is like an old circus tent without a center pole. This morning, we talked about the fact that too many Christians don't actually believe that they're saved. And tonight, I want to challenge that many Christians don't actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe a lot of people suffer from nominal faith, worry about whether or not they're saved, struggle with shame and guilt, or simply feel indifferent towards Christianity because many of us are not truly convinced intellectually that Jesus actually died and rose again. If we could believe this, we would be unstoppable. Nothing could stand in our way, not even death itself. Tonight, we're examining Matthew's account of the resurrection. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 28. If this is a true story, it's absolutely the most important event in the history of mankind. And if you can believe it, hey, if you can believe in the resurrection, then it will change your life in profound ways. We'll begin in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Here's the first point. If we believe in the resurrection, nothing can stop us, not even hopelessness. Not even hopelessness. Think about the frame of mind of these women. They spent the past three years at least following Jesus, hook, line, and sinker, and now Jesus is dead. The disciples are in hiding. Christianity seems to be debunked before it has even started. Imagine how hopeless they must have felt. And yet, listen, listen, they are following Jesus even after he's dead. They come to his tomb. In both Jewish and Roman culture, women were devalued. They were almost seen as property. Their testimony was not considered credible in court. And yet, think about this, Pharisees and Sadducees, men, were the ones who plotted to kill Jesus. Judas Iscariot, a man, was the one who betrayed Jesus. Then all the rest of his disciples, all men, abandoned Jesus. And then Peter, a man, denied Jesus. And then Pilate and the Roman guards, men, tortured and killed Jesus. And while the disciples were in hiding, these ladies came to the tomb where big two Roman guards, who were also men, fainted when the earth shook. Every single man abandons, betrays, or abuses Jesus. But these women remain faithful to Jesus to the end. They were the last to leave the cross, and they were the first to visit the tomb. So let's follow their example. Keep following Jesus through your hopeless situations. 
There will be times in your life where you're going to feel hopeless. It's inevitable. This cannot be avoided. You're going to struggle with depression. You're going to struggle with tragedy. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to have financial issues and work issues and parenting issues and marital issues. There will even be times, listen, there will even be times where you fail God in the worst way. But even in those moments, in the midst of that hopelessness, Look to Jesus and hold on for another day, even when it seems like he's ignoring you, especially when it seems like he's dead. You follow him. And eventually, you'll see him move in ways far more than you could ever imagine or think. Let's continue in verse 5. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid. Isn't that the best first thing for the angel to say after this? Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. When you and I struggle with our faith in the resurrection, we shouldn't feel too badly because the disciples literally heard Jesus say over and over again that he was going to die and be raised again, and they still didn't believe it until it happened. They were still surprised, right? The first thing both the angel and Jesus say to Mary and Mary is do not be afraid. If we believe in the resurrection, nothing can stop us, not even fear, not even fear. Man, this makes us all think of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? Okay, most things remind me of movie clips, okay, that's just the way I work. So I'm going to show you a clip from the Claymation classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. In this scene, Rudolph and his family and Yukon Cornelius are about to escape from the abominable snowman's cave when the monster returns. I can't wait for Christmas. I love what Hermie says there. You hear what he said? You can walk right past him. Can you imagine walking right past the abominable snowman? Why? Because he'd taken all of his teeth away. If Jesus rose again, what do we need to be afraid of? Do we need to be afraid of death? Again, the Apostle Paul has powerful words for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Much like the abominable has no teeth, so death has no sting. And we can walk right through it. We can walk right through death, guys, if we believe in the resurrection. Death is a mighty humble bumble. Have somebody say that 
at your funeral. Mighty humble bumble. So take the time to compare everything you're afraid of with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is you're afraid of, Jesus walked out of his own grave. Okay? Let's look at verse, the next verse. What verse are we on? Verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, the angels say to Mary and Mary, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Once again, both this angel and later Jesus tell the women to go and tell. They say, go and tell people in a world where women are not taken very seriously that something that everybody knows is impossible has happened. I think it is so important that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. This is something we should all remember. If we believe in the resurrection, nothing can stop us, not even public opinion. Once a little fly came across a spider web and was, that was beautiful and clean. The spider saw the fly and said, come on over and rest a spell. There's, a pl- there's plenty of room. I know this happened because I saw it at my house, you know, talking spiders and things. You know. Come on over and rest a spell. There's plenty of room. The fly replied, do you think me stupid? I can see that there are no other flies here, and I can tell why. Just then he looked down and he saw a large group of flies dancing on a piece of paper. (laughs) He said, see, there's where I need to go. That is where everybody else is. And so he then joined the rest of the flies struggling hopelessly with the fly paper. What do people know? If Jesus Christ can walk out of his own grave, then whose opinion should matter most to you? Choose to trust Jesus over everyone else, even yourself. This is a point we made this morning, a point that we need to repeat to ourselves every day. The hardest person to trust Jesus more than is yourself, right? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 to 31, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus says, Look around you. What do these people do? They can kill your body? You think that's a big deal? You need to... Be afraid, rather, he says, of the one who could destroy both your soul and body in hell. He's getting real intense. (laughs) You don't need to be afraid of people who could take your life. You need to be afraid of the one who could take your soul. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And I'm sure you guys can relate to that. Many of you probably go out and buy sparrows often. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. Verse verse 30, and even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Not as big of a deal for some of us as it is for others. (laughs) Verse 31, so don't be afraid. You're worth more than the sparrows. Jesus says there's only one person, only one person that you should be afraid of. The one that can take your soul. And let me tell you how he feels about you. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He knows your name and your every worry. And he knew every sin you'd ever commit before he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for you. What will they think? Did Jesus raise from the dead? Who cares what they think? We continue in verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. 
Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. What a wonderful moment that must have been. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, and here's the point that we want to get to now. next. Do not be afraid. That's the repeat. Go and tell. Who does he say go and tell? My brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. Here we see a small but meaningful difference between what the angels said and what Jesus said. The angels said, go and tell his disciples, but Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. Now, why is this significant? Because this is so important. The last time Jesus was with the disciples, what did they do to him? They abandoned him. They ran away. And the first thing Jesus says about them when he's back is, go and tell my brothers. He still sees them as his brothers. If we believe in the resurrection, nothing can stop us, not even our greatest sins. Not even our greatest sins. Let me tell you a true story about a guy named Rusty Woomer. Rusty Woomer was born in 1954 to a family of five in West Virginia. He was the oldest of the children, and he was dirt poor. He only had a few pairs of pants, one shirt, and a pair of shoes. His father was an abusive alcoholic who abused he and all of his siblings verbally and physically. At the age of 14, he'd had enough, and he ran away, never to return. By the age of 16, he dropped out of school, and he slept under bridges and in gas station bathrooms. As a 16-year-old, he went into a convenience store, beat up a clerk, and stole a couple of cases of beer for some older kids who dared him to do it. And he got arrested for this and spent two years in prison. And for the rest of his life, he just kept coming back to prison. At the age of 18, he spent two years in prison in Kentucky for rape. And it just snowballed from there. At the age of 25, he became friends with a, a man who was 15 years his senior, who was a hardened criminal. And this guy introduced him to drugs. And when he started doing drugs, he really lost his mind. And they were living in South Carolina at the time. And for the next several months, they unleashed a crime spree in South Carolina like they had never seen there before. They robbed and they assaulted and everything else that you can imagine. And in the end, they had killed four innocent people. For this, Rusty was sentenced to death. In prison, five years later, in 1985, a preacher by the name of Bob McAllister made his regular rounds at the local prison when he came to the cell of a prisoner he had yet to meet. The cell was disgusting and unkept. There were Playboy magazines, uneaten food, cockroaches everywhere. When he looked at the prisoner, the prisoner's hair had grown so long and beard so long, they were greasy and matted to his face. And Bob looked at the man and he said, can I pray for you? It was Rusty. And Rusty said, sure. After the man got done praying, Rusty looked at Bob and he said, I have hurt a lot of people and I'm sick and I'm tired and I'm lonely Bob slid a New Testament under the door. And he told Rusty, he said, hey, I'll make you a deal. If you'll read a book in there called John, it's about a guy named Jesus. I'll come back in a couple days and we can talk about it. Rusty agreed and Bob left. When Bob returned three days later, he was shocked. He didn't think he'd come to the right cell because it was clean. It smelled like disinfectant. Rusty had shaved his face, gotten a haircut, looked like a different person. He said, I, I read the book of John, and then I read the rest of it. 
and I have some questions. So Bob and Rusty sat and discussed Jesus Christ. And they kept talking about Jesus for the next week. And at the end of that week, Rusty gave his life to Christ, became a Christian. And then Rusty said, I'm sorry, Bob said to Rusty, we've got some work to do. And Rusty and he worked together as Rusty wrote handwritten letters to all the people he'd hurt, asking for their forgiveness. In 1989, Rusty was moved to a section of prison called the Death House, where people who were on their way to death row were placed. As he awaited his death, he prayed that God would give him peace. And as, as faithful as God is, he replaced Rusty's fear with peace. And on one of his visits, Rusty told Bob that his favorite verse is John chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And on Thursday in April of 91, on a Thursday in April of 91, Rusty woke up for the very last time. And they gave him his last meal. And he chose a certain kind of pizza from a certain local pizza place. Because he'd heard the guards talk about how good it was. And his guards had been kind to him. So he gave them the pizza. Didn't have a, didn't have a piece of it. And then they came and they put the handcuffs on him. And they began to lead him to his death. And Bob was there. And Bob had a chance to talk to him one last time. And Bob looked into Rusty's eyes and he said, Look to Jesus, Rusty no more abuse, no more sleeping under bridges, freedom, completely free. When Jesus died, he killed your sins. And when he came back to life, he slammed the door shut on their power. Now your sinful past, listen, now your sinful past only has as much strength as you give it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not been made perfect in love. What is he saying? He's saying the person who still is afraid of God's punishment has not yet to come to understand how much God loves them. So, let Jesus handle your sins. What sins are still haunting you? Did Jesus raise from the dead? We return to our final point here. In verse 11, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. The Roman guards went first to the chief priests instead of their uh, commanders. This is a big deal because they knew they would get in trouble, right? Verse 12, when the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, verse 13, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Verse 14, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Verse 15, so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So the Jewish leadership understands that all the work they've done to kill Jesus will be undone if Jesus walked out of his own grave. So what do they resort to? They just lie and hope everybody will believe them. They tell a lie. And I want you to hear this. If we believe, if we believe in the resurrection, remember this morning we talked about how 
what you believe affects your, uh, uh, you, the way you live. It affects, it affects your actions and your behavior. If we believe in the resurrection, nothing can stop us, not even the lies. Satan desires greatly to marginalize, weaken, and hollow your belief in the resurrection because it is the center pole of your faith, and if he can make that part of your faith fake, the rest of it doesn't count. What did, what did Paul say? If you believe in your heart that Jesus is risen from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. Two facts are widely accepted by both Christians and non-Christians. Here's the first one. Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion. People who are atheists, people who are non-atheists and serious scholars will tell you that that's true. The second thing that everybody agrees on is that three days later, the tomb that he was buried in was empty. And the question that you and I have to answer is, why was the tomb empty? One of the suggestions that have been made was that the disciples moved it. This was the, the thing that the Jews wanted the Roman soldiers to tell everybody. Oh, the, the, Jew, the disciples came and stole the body. Think about how absurd that is for a number of reasons. First of all, they're in hiding because they're so afraid of what might happen to them. So all of a sudden, they decide to go and steal Jesus' body out of the tomb and then spend the rest of their lives declaring that he had been resurrected from the grave only to have that lead to their own torture and death. We know that all 12 disciples were martyred for their faith, right? Who, who would... Who would die for something they know is a lie? We know people would die for something they believe is true. But who's going to die for something they know is not true? Another suggestion has been that the Jews and, or the Roman leadership moved the body in order to keep it from being stolen. This is equally absurd because they were desperate to disprove the notion that Jesus rose from the dead. What would all, all they would have to do is produce the body. All they would have to do is say, wait a minute, he's not, he's not uh, alive, here's his body. Are we really to believe that 12 disciples, Mary and Mary, and over 500 other people in the coming days all had the same hallucination, or they all decided it would be fun to suffer and die for a lie? The disciples suffered and died, and so many other Christians throughout history have done the same because they didn't fear death, because they were convinced that Jesus Christ walked out of his own grave. On February 10th, 1973, three men were, ex were to be executed by a firing squad in front of 3,000 people in a town of Cabal in the western region of Uganda. The Ugandan bishop, Festo, not going to try to pronounce his last name, was allowed to talk to the men there in the arena for a few moments before they died. By his own account, he was struggling with what to say to this sort of men just moments before they were going to die. How do I share the gospel with these guys? How can I make this as meaningful as possible? But as he was approaching them, asking God to give him the words to speak, he got distracted and even shocked when he saw them broadly smiling, all three of them, with sincere joy in their eyes, as if they were excited. And one of the men said, Bishop, I'm so glad you came. I want to tell you that the day we were arrested, all three of us became Christians. Christ came in and forgave me all my sins. Heaven is now open, and there is nothing between me and my God. This is what the guy's saying moments before he's going to be shot for his crimes. Please tell my wife and children that I'm going to be with Jesus and ask them to accept him into their lives. The guards were so rattled by these men's 
positive acceptance of their death that they forgot to put the hoods on their faces. They died moments later with smiles and peace. The bishop said it was one of the most powerful experiences of his life, humbled him and renewed his faith. He said he shared their story at a church in one of the criminal's hometowns the next week, and the congregation broke out in spontaneous praise, and many gave their lives to Christ that day because they saw that guy grow up, and they couldn't believe it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. I want to end by reading Paul's words to you. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead? If there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not, to be ra are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are still lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Please stand. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a time of invitation. Charles will be up front if you need to talk or pray. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would renew our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those of us in here who have been struggling with nominal faith, and we haven't been sure why until tonight when we realized maybe we haven't really been convinced of the miracle of the resurrection, of the defeat of death that took place, and what the resurrection of Jesus means for our personal lives right now. God, I pray we would leave this place more convinced of the lordship of Christ, of the divinity of Christ, of the claims of Christ than ever before. I pray at the very least that we would leave this place with a, a hunger and thirst to study the resurrection of Jesus even more so that we might be further and further entrenched in the faith so that we can loosen our grip on the things of this world and tighten our grip on your son. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said.